Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 31st, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I can't believe that one month of this new year is gone already. It evaporated. This evening, we are going to present Clifton Emmerheiser on Ted Wyland. I think I'm accustomed to pronouncing his name Wieland, but I believe it's probably Wieland would be correct. Here I have decided to take a short break from my commentary on the Gospel of John and have a little fun at the expense of a clown named Ted Wyland, a name which is probably too familiar to many of our listeners. But I guess some people will now wonder why I insist on doing this. The truth is that unlike many of the other men whom we have criticized over the years, most of whom we deeply respect in spite of any perceived flaws in their work, Wyland is still alive and well and spouting his nonsense under the pretense of being an identity Christian. While he has willfully ignored all of our inquiries and criticisms. Wyland is actually a self-righteous universalist who would, in effect, eradicate identity from Christianity altogether. But Wyland is also one of the ringleaders of an entire circus of such clowns which includes Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, Jory Brooks, and others. Two years ago, I would have included Dave Barley in this list, but I have learned that he has openly recanted his former universalism, which is certainly to his credit. However, while they are not quite as odious, Barley and Lawrence Blanchard and a few others still have subtle elements of universalism in their doctrines and scriptural interpretations. So they still need some correction. Wyland had a book disputing our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 titled Eve, Did She or Didn't She? I never read it, but Clifton has a copy on one of the shelves here somewhere. And if I ever do read it, I might have yet another presentation to write. But for that, Clifton had criticized Wyland frequently in his special notices to all who deny two seed lines series. And when I presented that here in podcasts throughout 2017, I hope to have expounded upon those criticisms. That series of papers was written by Clifton throughout 2002 and 2003. Then, later, as I have also explained elsewhere, our friend Tony Gagner had written Wyland a letter in 2005, and that letter compelled me to also write to Wyland, which I did in August of that year. Wyland never responded to my letter, and Clifton had it published on the IsraelElect.com website where he added some citations from Wyland, which were representative of the things with which we took issue. Since I have come to control IsraelElect.com, 
I redirect many of the papers there to where they are posted at Christagenia. Now, since I have been released from prison in very late 2008, I have encountered Wyland many times in social media, and I have confronted him each time in a kindly manner, but he has only scoffed at me, and he has refused to discuss any of these issues with me. For that, he certainly does deserve the label, clown, and in his case, rodeo clown, having to do with his own personal background. Yahweh God be willing, our resolve has only strengthened over the years, and we are not going away. Ted Wyland and his cronies imagine themselves to be representative of Christian identity truth, but they have only layered the recognition of the Israel of the covenants of God as a thin veneer over their so-called Judeo-Christianity, which is actually what they preach. I should say their version of Judeo-Christianity. So Wyland justifies sending Bibles to the Negroes in Africa, and even boasts about it, among his many other stupid deeds. When I first got out of prison, where I was able to begin working to build my own ministry, I spoke with Clifton at length, and we concluded that we would never convert these clowns, as they are all, as they are all self-righteous, too full of themselves to realize or even admit their mistakes. So we agreed that it is better to continue to make examples of them, and therefore it has been my endeavor not to try to convince them, but to mock them and marginalize them as we do our best to advance Christian identity scholarship and spread our creed as best as we can. Christian identity certainly is truth, but only once the identity portion and its consequences are properly understood. To that end, many of our own critics often accuse us of focusing too much on race and not enough on Christ. So I would challenge them to recall what Christ had told us, as we have recently discussed his words in John chapters 14 through 17 at great length. In John chapter 15, Christ told his disciples, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There are admonitions throughout the prophets that Yahweh loved only the children of Israel. So the Christ who had spoken those words had also said, it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And then I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 15. Gathering grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, we are in danger of scattering rather than gathering the people of God. It is imperative that we avoid bringing goats into the sheepfold. As Christ himself has attested, 
that he shall say to them, Depart from me, ye accursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, in Matthew chapter 25. We can only properly focus on Christ, and we can only properly love our brethren once we can admit that there is indeed a difference between the sheep nation and the goat nations, and that the sheep nations obviously have a future in the kingdom of heaven where the goat nations do not. So why should we waste our time and our resources on them now, actually hating our own brethren by depriving them of resources which they could put to better use? This is the danger of men such as Ted Wyland in that teaching Christians universalism, he diverts them from edifying their own brethren whom they should love. So when Tony Ganyer and I had each written Ted Wyland back in 2005, that had also compelled Clifton himself to write several short essays addressing Wyland's errors. Now we shall present two of those essays here this evening, which Clifton first published as pamphlets, but which were later posted at IsraelElect.com and then at his own website, once I had created it in early 2009. This is the first of those two essays, titled Ted R. Wyland's Venom, which Clifton had evidently finished on September 2nd of 2005, only days before he transcribed the letter which I had written to Wyland in August, which he completed on September 5th. The second is Ted R. Wyland's Gift of Bibles to Nigeria brings us twice as much evil. That essay was completed in November of 2005. A third essay, which was written in the interim, was titled Ted R. Wyland Denounces Yahshua Christ. And I may present that at some other time. Of course, the denunciation was not direct. It wasn't made directly by Wyland, but in his teachings, he's actually denouncing Christ rather than promoting him. So now we shall present Ted R. Wyland's Venom by Clifton Emmeheiser. And hopefully doing this, I will also amend for some very old Christian identity mistakes that I pray I can clear up here this evening. Evidently, Clifton wanted to make a pun, as Wyland denies that Eve was sexually seduced by a serpent. So, that very denial, along with his other mistakes, makes Ted himself a serpent, at least between the ears, if he's not one in nature. Clifton begins, I am aware that this is very strong language, but sometimes a very strong antidote is needed to neutralize a very dangerous poison. Let's examine the picture for a moment to see if Ted R. Wyland fits this title's description. 
A serpent will usually catch the eye of its victim in order to hypnotize its prey before making its deadly strike. A serpent will coil and hold its motionless pose with its mouth wide open, with fangs extended and forked tongue appearing. Then suddenly the serpent strikes out, burying his fangs in the flesh of its victim and injecting its deadly poison. And if the proverbial shoe fits, then let Wyland wear it. Before we commence any further, let me say that Clifton is going to be quoting from some of Wyland's sermons, which he had on audio cassette. I have no idea if this material exists anywhere in writing. I have at least most of Clifton's audio collection in that format, and one day I do hope to extract at least the relevant material and put it into digital format. I don't know if I'll ever actually get the time to do that, but I hope to do it. Having many tasks and only two hands, I do not yet know if I will succeed. So Clifton continues, let's now examine the nature of the poison. To do this, I will quote from Ted Weiland's remarks on one of his audio cassette tapes entitled Some Basics, where Weiland apologizes for the other races by saying, but that doesn't mean that a non-Israelite cannot join himself to Yahweh and partake. And why wouldn't we want them to? And I'll tell you why, because they would be spots in our feasts of charity. Wyland continues, Why wouldn't we want the nations around to be serving our God and under his laws so we could have commerce with those nations? And that's a key error right there on Wyland's part. That is a profound mistake in his thinking. And it's difficult for me not to respond to this as I read it. I'm sorry. He continues, not only for my race, but for their race as well. I, meaning Wyland, have come to appreciate the other races and their individuality more since understanding this identity message than before I understood it. God created everything to be good. Have you ever noticed the media always saying we call the other races mud people? I have never in my life ever heard the term except in the media, not amongst the people I preach to. So why wouldn't we want to embrace others into this message? Wow. If anything, we should be absolutely ashamed of ourselves because of our past reputation and our past history as a people and what we have squandered because of who we are. We should be ashamed of ourselves and our forefathers more than the rest of the races. They are wallowing in their sin because of our sin. Let's just face it. If an Antifa communist ever came into Christian identity to subvert it, they could not outdo Ted Wyland. Not after that paragraph. Clifton will answer this in his own words below, but I cannot help myself but to comment now. Yahweh chastised the ancient children of Israel 
for the exact same thing which Wyland encourages here. Communion with the other races so, as he says, we could have commerce with those nations is the very same motivation behind Mystery Babylon, and Wyland promotes it. The law was given only to the children of Israel, and for that reason David rejoiced where he wrote in the 147th Psalm, speaking of Yahweh, that he showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Yet Wyland uses fine language and emotional arguments while pretending to know more than David. The children of Israel were condemned for trading with the other nations, even other Adamic nations, in Hosea chapter 2. There we read, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, speaking of the nation of Israel collectively. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, meaning the other nations, that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink, meaning international trade. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and will make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, meaning Yahweh. For then was it better than with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal by trading with those other nations. Continuing with Clifton, here we will cite Wyland once again. Then again, Ted Wyland on an audio CD labeled Mission to Israel, entitled, You Might Be a Christian If, and the address given in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Clifton had to note that address I guess in case anyone ever wanted to actually write Wyland and ask for a copy of that address, that message, or whatever you want to call it, in case they wanted to verify what Clifton is saying. And Clifton said that Wyland, in that message, made additional poisonous false allegations saying the following. 
and quoting Wyland once again, and don't you dare, and I don't think anyone would hear, I'm sure you wouldn't, but somebody who might hear this on tape, don't you dare interpret what I just said as racist and supremacist. Because I assure you that one can be a separatist without being a racist, and without being racist or supremacist. And I know for a fact that you cannot convince the non-white racists of that. Wyland is absolutely naive in that attitude. But he continues and he says, how do I know that? Because I'm a separatist and I denounce racists and supremacists, meaning that he's really a conflicted idiot. And if you don't want to believe me on that, then you might want to possibly take the word of hundreds. And who knows how many more, maybe more than that, you might want to take the word of hundreds of black Nigerians and others to whom this ministry has sent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of free Bibles and tapes since its very inception. Of course, the Bibles and tapes aren't free. Somebody paid for them. White people paid for them, while Teddy Boy sent them to niggers by his own admission. And then he uses that to somehow prove his righteousness. I'm not a separatist because I hate other races. I'm a separatist because I love Yahweh and his laws, which require, which require that his people live separate, segregated lives. Now, once again, there are going to be all kinds of objections. Someone is surely to counter that this passage is addressing religious, not racial separation, to which I respond. Not that there are some exceptions that people can't from the other races and have in the past join themselves to Yahweh and embrace the covenant. If only he would stop making excuses for niggers, Ted Wyland might be a Christian. In the meantime, he's just a communist posing as a Christian. Now Clifton responds. In the first place, Yahshua Christ himself is a racist. For Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50, in substance, reads, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, the sea of people, and gathered of every race or kind in the King James Version, which is the word for race, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good, and Clifton explains in brackets, the good racial kind, which is what is meant, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad, the bad racial kind away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them, the bad racial kind, into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Of course, the parable of the net accords with the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now Clifton responds, Since I have already addressed the racial issue in my Was Christ Politically 
incorrect. Matthew 13, 47-50 brochure or essay. Clifton had published an essay illustrating the meaning of the parable of the net. I will now redirect my focus on Wyland to a different, but just as deadly, fallacious premise which he maintains. To show you what I mean, I will take a few excerpts from the two previous quotes by Wyland here, the two quotes which Clifton had already presented. And Wyland states, or stated in those citations, but that doesn't mean that a non-Israelite cannot join himself to Yahweh and partake. And why wouldn't we want them to? Why wouldn't we want the nations around to be serving our God and under his laws? So why wouldn't we want to embrace others into this message? To which I respond, not that there are some exceptions, that people can't from other races and have in the past joined themselves to Yahweh and embraced the covenant. Now to that, Clifton responds, what you have just read from the lips, the very lips of Ted Wyland himself, is out-and-out out malicious fraud of the most reprobate kind. And Clifton explains reprobate as indicating one foredained to damnation. When a person or party of persons are named in a binding and exclusive contract, it is downright fraud to allow a third party to become a benefactor of that pact or enter in by any means, direct or indirect. It's not open to question or debate. Hence, Ted R. Wyland has made himself a criminal in Yahweh's sight, for no one has the authority to break or amend Yahweh's covenants in any way, shape, or manner. Wyland needs to cease and desist from his God syndrome attitude. And before we continue with Clifton on the covenants, let me make an illustration of a few things in respect to Wyland's attitude and claims, which Wyland has always missed. The Old Covenant did have provisions where certain strangers could live in Israel for three generations and be admitted to the congregation. But that is a specific command concerning specific people found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. While the texts have Edomite and Egyptian, we would debate and assert the contention that they originally had Aramean and Egyptian, which is Syrian and Egyptian. Even Paul described the Edomites as vessels of destruction, and Yahweh in Malachi had said that he hated Esau, which Paul had also quoted. We have many examples of the letters in Hebrew, D and R, and therefore the words in Hebrew for Aram and Edom being confused. However, that, even that, is immaterial. The commandment was nevertheless given in regard to particular people in a particular time. And those particular people do not exist 
in their same form and nations today. We cannot extend the concept to everyone or anyone. In fact, the same scriptures also permanently excluded other people. Other commandments in the Old Testament, when I say the same scriptures, I mean the same scriptures in that chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Other commandments in the Old Testament law explain that sojourners who submitted to circumcision could eat the Passover or that they must observe the Sabbaths and other similar things. But nothing ever included them in the promises which were made to Abraham. Simply because they were allowed to live in Israel and under certain conditions does not mean that they were ever included in the covenants. Weiland confuses these issues. At the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 2, we see that Solomon numbered the strangers in Israel at just over 150,000. And then he laid burdens upon them. The very fact that he was able to number them demonstrates that they remained identifiable and that they were not actually assimilated into the body of Israel, or perhaps he would not have been able to number them. They were there, but they were still, in Solomon's time, second-class residents of Israel. Wyland is only assuming that strangers became Israelites without any actual proof of something which is impossible in the first place. Abraham's seed came from his loins, and no man can choose for himself to be of another man's seed. Furthermore, the new covenant was also made with a specific people, and Yahweh God himself had said that he would write his law in their hearts. Those people are the house of Israel and the house of Judah explicitly. And no one else could ever be included because Yahweh did not leave room for any other inclusion when he stated the terms of that covenant. For that same reason, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul of Tarsus had said that no man could disannul or add to the covenant for his own benefit. It is folly for Wyland to think that he could teach anyone the law and that anyone could thereby attach themselves to the covenants. Uttering those remarks, he has even confounded the terms of the old and new covenants. He has created a lie and he has deceived himself with it. But we are compelled to address it because he continues to deceive others. This is why Clifton had accused Wyland of pretending to be God. And now we will continue with Clifton's response, where he has already presented some of the assertions which I just made, but in a different way. I will break up his paragraph to include the scriptures which he next cites. He says, one simply cannot go around including the non-Adamic in the Edenic covenant, the 
covenant made in Eden, where in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And of course, that's only part of that covenant. One simply cannot take it upon themselves to include the serpent seed in the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3, verses 14 to 22. Genesis 3, 15 to 22 read in part, And I will put enmity between thee, Yahweh speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then, of the covenant which Clifton is discussing. And unto Adam he said, in verse 17, and we will skip to the verse 22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. And Clifton is correctly contending that simply because Adam and his race were given that promise and that challenge, that that doesn't mean that that could be extended to anybody of any other race, for which Wyland is just a liar. Clifton goes on and says, it is not fitting to include the non-Noahic people under the Noahic covenant, meaning that only the descendants of Noah can be included in the promises which Yahweh God made to Noah. Genesis 6.18, but with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Yes, there are non-Noahic people. Noah's descendants are carefully listed in Genesis chapter 10. But in Genesis chapters 14 and 15, we see all sorts of people in the area around about Palestine, which do not descend from Noah and his sons, the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Zuzumzim, or, or whatever the hell they are, which are all different varieties of giants, and other people which are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, which did not descend from Noah. Then in Genesis chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and you... Be ye fruitful, and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spoke unto Noah, and to his sons with him, saying, And behold, I will establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the land. Another verse in Genesis chapter 9 shows how we should expect the non-Adamic races to behave towards us, so long as we walk in the light of our God. And that is in verse 2. 
and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered clifton continues and says it is downright fraud to attempt to include the non-Abrahamic people under the Abrahamic covenant, citing Genesis chapters 13, 15, 17, and 22. So we will read portions of those. Genesis chapter 13, verse 16. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And Genesis 15, and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And that is where Yahweh God made an unconditional promise with Abraham that his seed would inherit the earth. And this is the way that such covenants were made in the ancient world. This is evident from ancient inscriptions that a man would divide these animals and the parties to the covenant, those responsible to uphold the promises which were spelled out in the agreement, would pass through the midst of the animals. In Genesis chapter 15, Yahweh passed through the midst of the animals, but Abraham did not. So there's no responsibility to do anything on Abraham's part. It's all on Yahweh. Now Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 7. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. In other words, those nations, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, did not exist yet, but they were sure to come into existence. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and unto thy seed after thee. Nobody else can become or make themselves one of Abraham's seed by keeping the law. In fact, that's the entire point of Paul's expositions in the, the epistle to the Galatians and in Romans chapter 2, that the promise wasn't according to the law. Otherwise, the covenant is useless that the promise was according to what was spoken to Abraham, his seed, regardless of whether or not they kept the law, because there were unconditional promises to Abraham, which Yahweh must fulfill. 
Genesis chapter 22, from verse 15. And the angel of Yahweh called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld my son, thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. When the New Testament was declared in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Luke, one of the objectives was explained. It was explained that Yahweh had chosen to save Israel from their enemies. Thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Ted Wyland would drag them over to the wrong side to try to make them Abraham's seed or let them embrace the covenants of God, which were never made for them, which cannot possibly ever be for them because those promises were only made to Abraham's seed. When outsiders lived in Israel, they were still outsiders. If they were circumcised outsiders, they could eat the Passover. But that was about all they could do. They weren't made party to the covenants. Clifton says it is madness to attempt to include non-Israelites under the Mosaic covenant, citing Deuteronomy chapter 26. Thou hast vouched Yahweh this day to be thy God, and to walk in his ways, and to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and to hearken unto his voice. And Yahweh has vouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, separate from all other people, as he has promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he has made, in praise and in name and in honor, that thou mayest be a holy people, meaning a separate people, unto Yahweh thy God as he has spoken. Clifton then says, It is not suitable to attempt to include non-Israelites under the covenant dubbed the Palestinian covenant, referring to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 30. And we will see why, because the blessings of obedience and the blessings of disobedience are spread over these three chapters. Deuteronomy chapter 28 from verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God. This was conditional. The children of Israel had to obey God in order to be set above all the other nations of the earth. When they weren't, they were put off in punishment. They were brought low. However, even though they were brought low, Yahweh was still bound to his unconditional promises which he made to Abraham, the unconditional covenant 
which he made in Genesis chapter 15. So we might be punished, but the objects of the covenant, the children of Israel themselves, have not changed ever than in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 28. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then skipping on to the end of the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Clifton then says, one should not attempt to include any non-Davidic people under the Davidic covenant. Citing 1 Samuel chapter 16, Psalm 89, and Jeremiah 33. We'll read from the first two. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. Then from Psalm 89, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Clifton then says, it is not proper to include any non-Solomonic people, meaning people who did not descend from Solomon, under the Solomonic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, of course Yahweh is still speaking to David, Solomon's not born yet. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. That's the covenant of which Solomon is the subject, or the object, I should say. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, which he certainly did, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So Clifton says, and it is surely unlawful to the highest degree to attempt to bring non-Israelites under the new covenant for which only the house of Israel and the house of Judah are legally named, citing Jeremiah chapter 31 and Hebrews chapter 8, where Paul repeats that promise of a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, we read, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that houses are families, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, 
But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Yahweh found it necessary to do that after chastising the children of Israel and then being reconciled to them in Christ. He found it necessary to do that to uphold, as we read in Luke chapter 1, the promises made to the fathers, period. It's not done for the sake of the children of Israel. It's done for the sake of the promises which Yahweh made to their fathers, period. The point that Clifton has made is that, that if Yahweh did not leave a provision for other races in any of these covenants, then neither can we assume that other races may have any part in any of these covenants. And neither can we interpret any other verse of Scripture in a way which gives them a part in these covenants. To do so is to attempt to change the Word of God for ourselves. So Clifton appropriately concludes, yet while it is advocating bringing the non-Adamic in, bringing in non-Adamic people by way of the new covenant. And there is absolutely no scriptural basis for such a thing. The people of the new covenant are the same people of the old covenant. Close. Stop. Period. Clifton makes an exclamation, which indicates a fact that no further argument can possibly be made. Of course, it would not be enough for a clown like Wyland. So Clifton continues, A lot of people are not aware that there was a separate covenant with Sarah, which excludes the seed of Hagar and Keturah. And Paul actually discusses that separate promise made to Sarah in Romans chapter 9. So it did not escape notice to our apostles. Cliff asks, just who is this Ted Wyland with a God syndrome to proclaim these covenant things? Clifton may have written these things concerning the covenant. To proclaim these covenant things are not so. Evidently, Wyland never read that only Isaac, the son of Sarah, was placed on the altar that made our daughters and no one else the exclusive, sanctified, set-apart possession of Yahweh. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a slight cold all week. believe I have a slight cold in Florida, but I do. While it included the seed of both Jacob and Esau, from later scriptures, it is obvious that each had his own purpose, and the promises were transmitted through Jacob exclusively. In the ancient world, what was placed on the altar of a god became the property of that god. And so it was when Abraham laid his son on the altar. He dedicated him to Yahweh. Everything to be done with Isaac was out of Abraham's hands from that point, and 
placed into the hands of Yahweh. Of all people, Yahweh commanded only Isaac to be dedicated to him. And anyone who attempts to change the significance of that is a fool deceived. Clifton continues. Ted Wyland exposed his hand when he said, not that there are some exceptions, that people can't from other races, and have in the past, joined themselves to Yahweh and embraced the covenant. It is apparent that Wyland is hanging his hat incorrectly on Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8, which says, Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Now, here's Wyland's biggest mistake, because he does, Clifton is a very correct in pointing this out, he does use this single passage to prove that somehow strangers can join themselves to the covenant. But this isn't talking about strangers at all in a racial sense, as Clifton shall elucidate further on. It is apparent that Wyland is hanging his hat incorrectly on Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8, where it says, Neither let the son of a stranger that has joined himself unto Yahweh speak, the son of the stranger, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people. Of course, this son of the stranger has a complaint about being separated from his people, meaning that he must have been with them in the first place. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith Yahweh unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls, a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, because Yahweh had told the children of Israel in their punishment that he would cut off their seed. That's why he is calling them eunuchs here, speaking allegorically, Wyland obviously doesn't get that. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of my prayer, in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. It should be for all the people. Yahweh Elohim, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him, other Israelites. This passage is not at all saying what Wyland conjectures or guesses it is saying, Clifton's response. And surely it is conjecture on his part that Yahweh separated the son of the stranger from his people 
informs us that the stranger was one of his people in the first place. We must understand that Isaiah was writing those words as Israel was taken into captivity to be scattered among the nations and ultimately to fulfill the promise that Israel would become many nations. So in the early years of that process, that is the context of Isaiah chapter 56. It is a promise that Yahweh would take special care of those who would hearken to him even in the time of their estrangement, which is the captivity. The son of the stranger of Isaiah chapter 56 is only the offspring of an Israelite who may have become estranged from his people in the process of the captivity. It cannot refer to anyone of any other race or nation. Ted Wyland is wrong, and it is either because he is purposely lying or because he simply cannot read. Again, continuing with Clifton, the following is what I wrote on this subject in my brochure, his essay, The Lie of Universalism, Part 1. And Clifton maintained the one in the title, the number one, as he called it. But unfortunately, there never was a number two. So citing his own essay, he says, Once we understand that the northern ten tribes had been divorced by the Almighty, along with most of Judah, they were cut off from the covenant and became estranged to him. In Isaiah 49, we see an example of this. Thus saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou had hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. So Isaiah chapter 56 is alluding to exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 40, 48, Isaiah 48 verses 17 through 19 are what I just read. Once we understand that the northern ten tribes had been divorced by the Almighty along with most of Judah, they were cut off from the covenant, as we read in Isaiah, and became estranged to him. The tribes, being cut off from the covenant, became like a eunuch or dry tree. If you have no seed, you are like a eunuch. For that period, Israel's seed had been cut off. So figuratively, the simile of a eunuch is appropriate. Upon understanding that Israel was the eunuch, or collectively of the tribes, eunuchs, there is no longer a conflict with Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, which is speaking about literal eunuchs. 
The passage is not talking about bringing non-Israelites under the covenant, but quite the opposite. Once Yahweh died for our redemption, we were then brought back under the new covenant, which includes only the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Once again, citing Deuteronomy chapter, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 31 and Hebrews chapter 8. Deuteronomy 23.1 speaks about a man who is wounded in the stones or having his privy member cut off, a literal eunuch, not being allowed into the congregation. Yahweh is not changing his law. He is referring to the children of Israel as figurative eunuchs because he alienated them in divorce. He cut off their seed, meaning that he would not have a relationship with their seed until he chose to redeem them in Christ, until the time came that he chose to redeem them in Christ. So they were basically eunuchs in dry trees from the time of the captivities until the time that they accepted Christ. Some may argue that the stranger in Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 and 6 is Strong's number 5236. That's the word nekar. Instead of 1616, that's the word ger. When Israel was divorced, they became equivalent to non-Israelites until Yahshua purchased them back or redeemed them. So 5236, Nekar, is not out of order in this passage. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, page 582, on this passage describes 5236 thusly. The man, Hebrew Enosh, a man humble in life, in contradistinction to Ish, one of high rank, and here Clifton made an error because he actually wrote the definition of 586 and not 5236, but I will rectify this when I make my own comments further below. Clifton says, in this sense, the meaning of Enosh is very fitting. It's also true of the meaning of Nekar. For Israel was humbled when she was punished. Deuteronomy chapter 28:44. That verse reads, He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Surely when Israel became the tail instead of the head, the term Enosh was not out of order. When are we ever going to start reading these things in the proper context? What this passage actually says, and what Wyland thinks it says, are worlds apart from each other. Clifton, still mistakenly, mistakenly speaking of Enosh instead of the word for stranger at Isaiah 56, 3 and 6, which is the word Nekar. To show that the divorced Israelites, continuing with Clifton, were considered strangers. All one need to do is read Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 5, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, 
because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 19, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promises, having no hope and without Yahweh in the world. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of Yahweh. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Also, we must consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 43, proclaims that Israel would become lower than the stranger and humble below the Enosh. We will discuss all of these definitions. Here Clifton has ended the citation of his paper, The Lie of Universalism, although he did not indicate that explicitly. So now he concludes, from this, it is highly apparent that Ted Wyland is a one-verse-at-a-time Bible expert, spelled with a small b, for as he reads it, it becomes unrecognizable. It is absolutely not true, which Jory S. Brooks asserted, that in Old Testament times, non-Hebrews could join themselves to the chosen nation through faith in Israel's God. Under the same principle in New Testament times, by faith in Israel's Savior and God in flesh, Jesus Christ, non-Israelites in a sense, inherit some of the blessings given to Israel. And that's just all bullshit. Non-Israelites get any of our blessings because we as a people have sinned and won't listen to our God. Clifton says, Jory S. Brooks here commits the criminal act of fraud by taking away the children's inheritance and giving it to the heathen. Ditto for Ted Wyland and his ilk. Not only is it fraud, but also grand theft, along with misappropriation of valuable assets, both physical and spiritual. Who then gives Jory S. Brooks and Ted R. Wyland the authority to rewrite Holy Writ, my, the pride of those afflicted with the God Syndrome. In much of the Lie of Universalism, which he first wrote in September of 2002, Clifton was addressing the Universalist, Jory Brooks, a man of much the same ilk as Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, and Ted Wyland although Brooks seems to lean more towards British Israel than the light variety of American Christian identity to which the others subscribe. He continues his conclusion. I don't know about others, but when I get to the judgment, I want every bit of my inheritance that is due me and the rewards for everything I have earned. And conversely, I do not want the slightest revenue of that which does not belong to me, which I have not earned. Therefore, I lay claim to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, 
Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. These are Paul's words to Timothy, and what hope would we have without them? But according to Wyland and Brooks, when we get to the judgment, some of our valuable inheritance will be redistributed to the heathen. This sounds more like Karl Marx's redistrib redistribution of the wealth. Haven't we been robbed enough in this life, let alone to be robbed further in the next? The truth is, the only ones who can take hold of the covenant are those who are named in the covenant. And the only ones named in the covenant are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So it appears that unless Ted R. Wyland repents, which is unlikely, his sins of fraud, grand theft, and misappropriation of valuable assets will follow him to the judgment rather than be open beforehand, and that being of his own free choice in the matter. Anyone who steals the inheritance from the rightful God-given heir and reallocates it to someone unqualified is a God-robber after the fact. Here is where Ted R. Wyland and Karl Marx fall, fall into the same category. So let the chips fall where they may. Surely Clifton has been before the judgment seat of Christ, and we pray with confidence that he has already received everything which he expected. He is right about one thing. Wyland's egalitarianism is indeed a form of communism. That's what universalism is. That somehow you could just choose something and receive it freely. He continues, this is not a less serious misdemeanor, but a major crime, and ignorance is no excuse, especially when we have the word before us for all to read, study, and research. All this is tantamount to robbing our Anglo-Saxon neighbor and sending the proceeds to Nigeria, which Ted R. Wyland has admitted he is doing. For if Wyland is taking the proceeds giving as, given as tithe and misappropriating it to Nigeria, he is guilty thereby. And actually, Ted is no better than any of the denominational churches who defraud white Christians with their missions to Africa and other faraway places, giving their gifts to those who have no part in any of the covenants of Yahweh our God. They are all thieves stealing from the body of Christ for the benefit of the devil. Returning to Clifton. Besides, what are we to do with Ezra chapter 9 verse 12, which correctly reads in part in the NIV, the New International Version, do not further their welfare or prosperity at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Clifton responds and says, It is immensely apparent that when we give aid of any kind or socialize with the other races, we allow them to gain advantage over us and destroy our children for generations to come. 
Wyland, instead of gathering the good into vessels, but casting the bad away, is rather gathering the bad into vessels, but casting the good away. Anyone who is ashamed of his forefathers, as he stated with his own lips, is surely casting the good away. Evidently, Wyland forgot the commandment to honor your forefathers and foremothers. Evidently, Wyland doesn't understand that many of our forefathers fought to the death with their battle axes and weapons of war so we could live in our present generation today. What an ingrate Wyland has made of himself. And according to Ted R. Wyland's letter dated to Tony Ganyer, dated August of 2005, the false accuser Emma Heiser, this is Wyland speaking about Emma Heiser, the false accuser Emma Heiser you have chosen to associate with will always be a disgruntled, hateful, mean-spirited, false accusing, ineffective bunch of nincompoops. Wyland evidently thinking that there was more than one Emma Heiser. Wyland answered Tony's letter, but he never answered my own. I am happy he did not answer it, since now he has no excuse for having ignored me and shut me out. I was a prisoner making an inquiry of him, and he failed to visit me. Now Clifton closes his essay. Please be advised that this nincompoop, or fool, will not sit idly by while Ted Wyland is in the process of giving the store away to the Nigerians or others, which he admits with his own lips he is doing. But the reader will have to decide just who is the real nincompoop, Emma Heiser or Wyland. It's your nickel, so take your choice, but don't grumble if you bet on the wrong horse. Now I must say that thousands of people, perhaps tens of thousands, have indeed benefited in one way or another from Clifton's efforts to share the truth concerning our Christian identity. But apparently, thanks to Ted Wyland, many Negroes in Nigeria have Bibles by which to wipe their tail ends, because that is about the only use they could ever possibly get out of the pages. Anything good in Wyland's work is tainted with his universalism, and just a little salmonella ruins the entire glass of eggnog. Now we will present the second of these two short papers by Clifton Emmerheiser, which discusses that very topic, Ted R. Wyland's gift of Bibles to Nigeria brings us twice as much evil, citing the Apocrypha and Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, Ecclesiasticus, chapter 12, verse 5. Clifton cites Ecclesiasticus 12, 5, but the work is also called the Wisdom of Sirach. While I would not count it as canonical scripture, the book represents the wise words of an evidently pious man who lived around the end of the third century, 
or perhaps the beginning of the second century before Christ. In chapter 50, the book states that Jesus, which is Joshua or Yahshua, the son of Sirach of Jerusalem, has written in this book the instruction of understanding and knowledge, who out of his heart poured forth wisdom. In the lengthy prologue to the work, the author professes to have translated into Greek the writing which he attributed to his grandfather, who was also named Joshua. It was common in ancient times to name a son after the grandfather, but the work has long been attributed to Sirach for some reason. Sirach would be this Joshua's father, and his grandfather, to whom the work originally belonged, was also named Joshua. <coughs> Clifton begins, This passage reads, Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done unto him. It would be advisable to read the entire chapter. It would also be advisable to check out the book of Ecclesiasticus, or Sirach, as it is sometimes called. For the author leaves his signature, and his message is directed towards Israelites. The word ungodly can only be referring to non-Adamites, for the other races have no true God as we have. In any event, while Sirach chapter 12 verse 5 may or may not be considered a part of the canon, it nevertheless represents wisdom that may be gained from studying the curses of disobedience upon the children of Israel, which are uttered in Deuteronomy chapter 28 or in Leviticus chapter 26, that when the children of Israel sin, the strangers among them are enriched and made to rule over them, getting their wives, sons, daughters, farms, and houses for themselves. Now Clifton once again refers to the letter that compelled him to write these essays. All this was brought to the fore in July of 2005 when Tony Gagne wrote Ted Weiland and took exception to one of Weiland's statements made on an audio CD where Weiland said in part, and if you don't want to believe me on that, then you might want to possibly take the word of hundreds, and who knows how many more, maybe more than that, you might want to take the word of hundreds of black Nigerians and others to whom this ministry has sent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of free Bibles and tapes since its very inception. This certainly is a statement which we would never expect a Christian identity pastor to make, especially when there are so many descendants of the ancient Israelites who are desperately in need of hearing our message and our money would be much better spent in that endeavor. Clifton continues, where Wyland tries to make excuses for himself, in a letter dated July 14, 2005, from Wyland to Tony Gagner, Wyland stated in part, It would be one thing, Tony, if I were neglecting the children 
and only ministering to non-Israelites. But you know that is not the case. If someone over in Africa wrote and requested a Bible from you, would you not send it to them? Probably not. But if you wouldn't, why wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to have the rest of the world that we will inevitably have dealings of some kind with? Wouldn't you like them living by laws of Yahweh? If not, why not? I wish Wyland had written that to me. We have already addressed the content of this statement. Now I must say that if my enemies thought that I would send a Christianian New Testament to some Negro in Africa just because I received such a request, they would probably send me hundreds of such requests just to drain my resources and pull me away from what it is that I really should be doing. I have a hunch that Wyland is a sucker and his own self-esteem leads him to being so suckered. How many, how would so many Negroes in Africa hear of Ted Wyland, who is comparatively obscure when compared to the many large denominational churches which are falling all over themselves to cater to Africans. Why don't they write the Catholic or the Lutheran or any other large, well-known church for a Bible? But they write Ted Wyland for Bibles, and he sends them hundreds. And it's probably some Jew putting them up to that, and Wyland's a sucker. Now, continuing with Clifton, on that same audio CD, Wyland also stated in part, not that there are some exceptions, that people can't from other races and have in the past joined themselves to Yahweh and embraced the covenant. Clifton says, this shows beyond all doubt that Wyland follows and promotes the unscriptural false doctrine of universalism. A covenant is a contract. How could someone embrace a covenant to which they were never a party in the first place? Wyland is lacking even basic knowledge about language. If the United States government made a contract with Boeing to produce an airplane and Boeing received a very lucrative price for that airplane, how could you think that you could somehow make an airplane and get the same money and get it from the government if no contract was ever made with you? And that's just one simple example, but it's one of a million possible examples. There is no way you could weasel yourself in on a contract and expect to benefit from it when it didn't name you in the first place. You have to be a party to a contract in order to reap its benefits. Now Clifton turns his attention to one of Wyland's partners in crime, James Brueggemann, another universalist. On his website, stonekingdom.org, in a statement of faith, states in part, 
We believe that non-Israelite people of all races can come under the Israelite covenants through faith and obedience to the law. And he's citing Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, which is basically a statement that strangers in Israel can eat the Passover if they are circumcised. Now, let's state that that does not make them children of the covenant. It does not tell them that they will receive salvation or be one of God's people. It only tells them that they could eat the Passover if they get themselves circumcised. Big deal. That's all it tells them. Nothing more than that. That does not make them party to the covenants. And then Brueggemann cites the same passage from that Wylan cites, Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. And he goes on to state, We believe that salvation to everlasting life and heavenly bliss is available to people of all races, just as it is to Israel. And there he is misquoting or misappropriating John 3.16 and Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. And Clifton says that Brueggemann claims he owes his belief on universalism to Stephen E. Jones, who is another false prophet and big-time liar. Notice that Brueggemann makes the same error as Wyland did to imagine the conditions of the Old Covenant could be imposed on the New Covenant, where instead Yahweh told the children of Israel that his new covenant was exclusively with them and that he would write his law in their hearts. The Negroes certainly do not have his law in their hearts. They only understand the law of the jungle. And I could carry on and on about this forever, but I will return to Clifton. Anyone meaning, anyone meaning Jones, who would lie about a well-known Protestant hymn the Solid Rock, and claim that Martin Luther, of 95 Thesis fame, wrote it, when in fact Solid Rock was written by Edward Mote and William B. Bradbury, the composer, and Clifton refers to an evangelical hymnal published in Cleveland as proof of that statement. Anyone who would make that claim is a cunning conniver. For the song Solid Rock, see page 150 of the hymnal. Not only did Jones lie about the author, but Jones added words that the author never wrote. And Clifton cites Jones's book, The Babylonian Connection, on page 154. Anyone who would lie about the author of the Christian hymn and falsify the lyrics could lie about almost anything. And Clifton kind of shouts, hello, all you Stephen E. Jones advocates. Stephen E. Jones did indeed do that very thing. He lied about the author of his hymnal, attributing it to Martin Luther rather than Moat and Bradbury. And he did pervert the lyrics of the hymn in order to support one of his own points. Clifton wrote about it in another essay titled, Stephen E. Jones, Intellectually Dishonest. And he is, clearly. 
and that essay will be linked here in our podcast notes this evening. Now Clifton continues, to keep from going beyond the scope of this brochure, or essay, as I prefer to call it, I will return to Brueggemann's so-called statement of faith to make one example of his misinterpretation of Holy Writ. Brueggemann cites Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49 in support of his universal theory, which reads, And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as one that is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is home-born and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. But I would say that this does not make the stranger an Israelite or one of Abraham's seed or a party to the covenant. Rather, he shall be as one who is born in the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. It only makes the stranger eligible to eat the Passover. It offers him nothing more. Now Clifton responds. When one researches scripture, one must always ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. Of these six elements, the when is very important. The Exodus is the history from when Israel left Egypt and were on their way toward the land of Canaan. Many in Israel identity are unaware that many of the houses of Zarah Judah and Dan separated from the Israelites before the Exodus. It is only reasonable, then, that some of those who had left paid return visits to the main body of Israelites from time to time, but were born in other places. In my brochure, or essay, Irish and Scottish Genealogy, I demonstrated how some of Zarajuda bypassed the captivity in Egypt and settled in the area of the Dardanelles and became known as Trojans. From Troy, some went up into Europe and others to Italy, and others eventually migrated as far as Ireland. Dan left Egypt in great numbers before Moses led the main body of the Israelites to the Red Sea, settling in Peloponnesus and other parts of Greece. Evidently, Brueggemann is ignorant of the history of this from Greek classics. Also, those from the tribe of Dan who left Egypt before the Exodus remained unknown, I'm sorry, remained known as Danoi, citing Bertrand Compare. The History of Greece by J.B. Burry spells it Danaoi and says of them that they were cousins of the Egyptians, but it doesn't say which Egyptians. Now Joseph got his wife from Azanath, from the priest of On, but On was also known as Beth Shemesh, the house of Shem, which can also be interpreted as house of the sun, and in Greek, Heliopolis, city of the sun. So the term cousins is not out of order. Clifton then refers his readers to this book that he had made on Compare's Lessons on a Revelation. <clears throat> now, this is also true, but Clifton is only conjecturing one possible view of the st 
strangers of the Exodus, which is not necessary. The strangers included anyone of the other Adamic nations who may be found sojourning among the Israelites, but their being circumcised does not make them Israelites. Now he continues again to address Brueggemann in an area which has already been covered here. As for the passage at Isaiah chapter 56 verses 1 through 8, which Brueggemann cites, I address that in my essay, The Lie of Universalism, number one, which we've already covered at length. We simply cannot understand this passage unless we comprehend the idiomatic language of Isaiah. The eunuchs of Isaiah 56.4 are the then-divorced tribes of Israel, for their seed was cut off from the covenant, and I stated this in the above-named essay. Once we understand that the northern ten tribes had been divorced by the Almighty, along with most of Judah, they were cut off from the covenant and became estranged to him. We can then see that the tribes being cut off from the covenant became like a eunuch or a dry tree. For that period, Israel's seed had been cut off, so figuratively, the simile of a eunuch is appropriate. Upon understanding that Israel was the eunuch, there is no longer a conflict with Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. This passage is not talking about bringing non-Israelites under the covenant, but quite the opposite. Once Yahshua died for our redemption, we were then brought back under the new covenant, which includes only the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The apostles later used this same language of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, that they had been estranged from Yahweh, but were once again being reconciled to God in Christ. This is probably the most significant aspect of Scripture to understand, as it is the foundational reason for the new covenant, which is laid by the prophets and by Christ himself. Continuing with Clifton, then we must also understand the use of the word stranger. Some may argue that the stranger at Isaiah chapters 56 verses 3 and 6 is, trend, is 5236, Nekar, instead of 1616, Ger. When Israel was divorced, they became equivalent to non-Israelites until Yahshua purchased them back. So 52.36 is not out of order in this passage. Clifton goes on again to give us the definition for 5.82 Enosh instead of 52.36 Nekar. I can't recall this error or noticing this error in the past, but I did proofread this document for Clifton in 2005. I don't I didn't always know what Clifton did with the results of my proofreading when I returned it to him. He had many other proofreaders, and sometimes he got confused. In fact, quite often, 
he got confused between my own suggestions and those from another proofreader named David Crosby. Some of David's papers are actually published on Clifton's website. And another proofreader named Walter Thotty. So, and Walter Thotty was a an alias. That's not his real name. I don't even remember Walter's real name. As far as I know, both David and Walter are still in prison. They were both doing life sentences, I believe. So Clifton goes on here to discuss from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown the definition of Enosh when he probably should have been defining Nakar, which is the word at issue here. And I will note that in our notes, but I will go on to discuss both words momentarily. Clifton says that Enosh is also fitting in this sense, for Israel was humbled when she was being punished. Many translators rendered the word man in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 or 6, as alien or foreigner, implying that the man of Isaiah chapter 56 is a combination of foreigner and Enosh. Now Clifton is still confused because the word man is not the issue here. The word stranger is the issue, and it's not translated from Enosh. It is translated as the Hebrew texts attest. It is translated from Nekar. So I don't know what was the reason for Clifton's confusion. Now the word Enosh, Strong's number 582, is a man in the mortal sense. It doesn't mean a non-Adamite. That's a lie. And I know that Compare and Swift both repeated that lie. The word Enosh was used in Genesis in reference to descendants of Adam. But that should not be an issue here. The word Gare, Strong's number 1616, is the common word for stranger. A sojourner of any race or nation, even an Israelite from another land or tribe could be considered and often was considered a gair. But the word nekar, Strong's number 5236, is usually translated as, or, or I should say is often translated as stranger in the sense of foreigner. And that is the word here in Isaiah 56 verses 3 and 6. That is the word which Clifton should have had issue with here. That is the word he should have been defining. A related word with the same meaning is 5237, which is Nakri. Nakar and Nakri are related words. The common perception among identity Christians is that Nakar and Nakri are always used to describe a person of another race. But that is not true. It is an oversimplified explanation, which has done more damage to our basic understanding of Scripture than it has done good. The verb form of the word nekar, 
which has the same spelling and is found at Strong's number 5234, can mean recognize and is often translated as acknowledge or discern in the King James Version. The noun is used of Joseph in comparison to his brethren. The noun Nekar, 5236, is used of Joseph in comparison to his brethren in Genesis chapter 42, verse 7, where we read, And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange, or a stranger, this is a noun, made himself strange unto them, and spoke roughly unto them. Then the word appears in 42.8, the very next verse, where we read, And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. That's the verb form. Joseph did not make himself into someone of another race, but rather he only acted in a way by which he hoped his brethren would not recognize him. The word was sometimes used in context, in other contexts of other Israelites. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 14 and in Lamentations chapter 4. This is how it is used in Isaiah chapter 56 <coughs> of an Israelite of the captivity who has been estranged from God and who is no longer recognized as an Israelite wherever it is used. It does not necessarily refer to someone of another non-Adamic race. Likewise, the word Nakri is not necessarily someone of a different race, as identity Christians often insist. Related to Nekar and the corresponding verb, it too merely refers to a person unrecognized or unknown, period. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything other than that. It could refer to a nigger or a Chinaman, or it could refer to another white person whom one does not know. So the word does not bear any racial connotation at all. In Genesis 31:15, the wives of Jacob had spoken in reference to their own father and said, are we not counted of him strangers? That word, mockery. Likewise, Job declared in his calamity that they that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. In Job chapter 19. In Psalm 69, David cried that I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. All of these passages use this term, Nakri. Rachel and Leah, Job and David, they were not complaining that they were somehow miraculously transmogrified into niggers. They were only lamenting that they were estranged from their own families or households.
Ruth had also called herself a stranger in that sense in relation to Boaz, using that same word. A knockery is an outsider, someone who is unknown to the beholder. And the term does not designate race or any particular race. In different times or historical contexts, it seems that the use of these terms had varying significance. In the period of the Old Kingdom, while the Canaanites and related Rephaim and other tribes were always accursed, the terms Nekar or Nakri were also used to define acceptable Adamic people such as Egyptians or Syrians. Contrary to Wyland's claims, one cannot prove that wherever Nekar or Nakri appear in scripture, that it referred to people of non-Adamic races, and that contention is outside of the context of scripture. But in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, as Jerusalem was being rebuilt, the need for the community to maintain religious and racial exclusivity, while it had always existed, was explicitly recognized and enforced by the rulers. Whereas earlier in history, it had often been neglected by the corrupt kings. That neglect is clearly condemned in the words of the prophets. By that time, after the return from Babylon, <coughs> excuse me, many of the surrounding peoples had indeed mingled with the Canaanite races. Or, if they were remnants of Israel, they no longer had their genealogies as they were kept by the priests in the Old Testament in the Old Kingdom to prove that they had not mingled. So the rulers, meaning Ezra and Nehemiah, justly urged the people of the return to account all of them as strangers regardless of their race. This in turn seems to have led to the troubles with the Samaritans, many of whom were remnant Israelites. In the days of Josiah, which ended only 120 years before Nehemiah became governor in Israel, four generations, he had cleansed Samaria of idols and returned the remnants of Israel who had remained there to worship in the temple. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 23. It's also in 2 Chronicles. But now, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritans were being rejected. And that was the primary source of friction and enmity between Samaritans and Judeans. If I'm not mistaken, it seems that Clifton usually, if not always, took it for granted that Compare, Swift, and other earlier Christian identity teachers were correct where they defined Nekar or Nakri to refer exclusively to someone of another race. And perhaps at times I did so myself, but it just isn't true. They only refer to someone who is unknown 
or unrecognized regardless of their race. There is a similar predicament with the term Enosh, which can be used to describe a mortal man of any race. So no definitive racial doctrine can be formulated solely upon any or all of these words. Since Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and the new covenant was made only for Israel, we must continue to account people of other races as Nekar or Nakri and acknowledge that the covenants were not made with them. The sin of the people in the old kingdom began when they thought they could have commerce with people of other nations. And that led to the more grievous sins of idolatry and race mixing. Evidently, Ted Wyland is justifying that process. But in scripture, another Adamic man or woman or even another Israelite who may be unknown to the beholder was sometimes also described by these same terms. And the same situation can be true today. As a digression, there is a Latin verb, negro, which is to blacken, and words that are nouns and adjectives which are related to it, like niger, which means black. I do believe that these words were derived from this Hebrew word nekar, in the sense of something growing black, thereby becoming unrecognizable. But that is a later development which does not change the meaning of the original Hebrew word as it was used in the Old Testament scriptures. A nekar is simply someone who's not recognized. That someone could be of any race. If they were going to be circumcised so that they could eat the Passover, even that would be a violation of the law if they were an Ammonite or a Moabite or one of the other people who were expressly prohibited from entering the congregation. Entering the congregation and becoming circumcised to eat the Passover, on the other hand, does not make somebody an Israelite, does not give them a part with the covenants. Joy Brooks, James Brueggemann, Ted Wyland, they're just assuming that it does. They are asserting that it does. And that's a lie. They're just liars. Continuing with Clifton. And at Deuteronomy 28.44, we can see one kind of humbling that Israel received. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. It should be obvious there is no room for the other races under Yahweh's covenants to Israel. When they come in and they get advantage over us, it's part of our punishment for disobedience. That's, what's Clifton, that's what Clifton is trying to illustrate here. When they do come in, it's part of our punishment. So Ted Wyland is promoting that we get punished more. He's promoting the idea that we should be punished more. Clifton says, it's a closed corporation. The covenants are a closed corporation. They are a closed agreement made 
for the benefit of specific people that nobody could change. All this universalism by this unenlightened trio, Wyland, Jones, and Brueggemann, is parallel to Jewish communism and Catholicism, and why would anyone want to associate with something like that? But let's not leave out Protestantism, for by and large, Protestantism is but warmed over Catholicism, and it certainly is. The Protestants didn't go anywhere near far enough in their Reformation. So what it all boils down to is that Ted Wyland donating Bibles to black Nigerians, he is aiding and abetting the other races to bring us twice as much evil as his contribution, as if we didn't already have enough evil. Contrary to Wyland, his gifts of Bibles to Nigeria are, in fact, a form of neglect to our own Israelite brethren. Maybe instead of evangelist Ted R. Wyland, it should rather be comrade Ted R. Wyland. And maybe instead of mission to Israel, it should rather be mission to Nigeria. So here it should be apparent that Wyland, Jones, Brueggemann, and the others have taken advantage of the wrong definitions of certain words, which are blindly repeated by many identity Christians, in order to try to disprove, or I should say perhaps negate, the racial exclusivity of the covenants. But even then they make scripture contradict itself as the racial nature of the covenants is indisputable, according to the language of the covenants themselves. Wyland calls his ministry Mission to Israel, but Clifton's label is perhaps more accurate. So Clifton continues, I'm not saying all this just to be funny. For all of this, is very serious business. Today we see the Enosh, not the divorced Israelites as eunuchs, but the other races, streaming in and building up a political base to override our ruling power. The term Enosh should be Nekar there, of course. The word Enosh does not appear in the verse in question. Clifton somehow got that confused. The word Enosh may sometimes refer to or include non-Adamic peoples as men in the mortal sense, where it is used, where it is sometimes used distinctly as opposed to the word Adam. David in the Psalms had cried out, had cried out against bloody men using Enosh, but he was speaking as much of their character and not necessarily their race. <coughs> In many other places, he used the term children of men using Adam. And that is indeed a reference to a specific race. If we look in Strong's Concordance entries, under the plural word men. We find many occurrences 
which were translated from Enosh, which refer to which clearly refer to Adamic people. So Enosh was often used to describe men who happened to be of the Adamic race, but they're still mortal men. That's the meaning of the word Enosh. Oversimplifying the definitions of terms, or just plain misrepresenting them, has caused much confusion among identity Christians. However, while adult males of other races may also be described as Enosh, they certainly cannot be described as Adam. Not ever. Continuing with Clifton, once again, our Anglo-Saxon countries are simply being handed over to the non-Adamite Enosh. What will happen when we come to the threshold and they gain a majority rule over us? And Ted Wyland is helping the non-Adamite Enosh to gain that control by his Bible gifts to Nigeria. It's a drop in the ocean, but it's still a drop in the ocean. We are coming quickly to the critical point where the non-Adamite Enosh will take over, and it will be just like New Orleans, and recently at Toledo, Ohio, October 2005, not to mention France on a national scale. Have we already reached the point of no return? How soon are we going to have to stay up all night to prevent our homes or autos from being burned or our places of business? How soon are we going to see a mob of non-Adamite Enosh rushing down the street seeking the blood of our family? And Ted Wyland helps bring on this kind of evil with his Bible gifts to Nigeria, and I don't know what happened in Toledo in October of 2005, except to say that every month on the calendar brings us new calamity in every American city through these non-Adamic races, through these beasts that we have propped up as people. And Wyland helps prop them up as people by sending them Bibles. We have deliberately broken the command of Yahweh at Deuteronomy 17.15. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger, a knockery, over thee which is not thy brother. And there Clifton supplied a definition of stranger as non-relative which is only partially true. I have relatives that are strangers to me. I'm sure we all do. As a collected people, by now we have actually broken this commandment innumerable times by electing all sorts of foreigners to offices throughout all of our nations. So now Clifton correctly states that today our people no longer care whether or not we have our own kind ruling over us. And even some in identity, in Israel identity, advocate non-Adamites to be over us. All this has come about because of the universal interpretations of Scripture. Today, the illegal alien has more rights than the citizen. 
and the citizen's tax money is spent to sustain the alien. Little by little, we are being overthrown by strangers, while Ted Wyland sends Bible gifts to Nigeria. <coughs> a qualification which disqualifies him as a any sort of watchman over the house of Israel. I cannot remember who Clifton may have been speaking about where he said that even some in Israel identity advocate non-Adamites to be over us. I do know that there are some identity Christians whom I would label as accelerationists, thinking that the more Negroes and Jews that there are in positions of power, the faster we will plunge into the depths of Sodom, and the sooner we may witness the fall of Babylon. Returning to Clifton, he describes another worsening condition. Are we not under siege, while our very words are being scrutinized, because there are those seeking to find something for which to be offended? Our country is being devoured. Our productivity is being deliberately sabotaged as an excuse to move jobs to the third world. At the same time, our living standards are being deliberately lowered while foreigners are given our better jobs in preference to our own people through equal opportunity, governmental programs. The wealth of the Israel countries is gradually being transferred to non-Israel lands to deliberately minimize and destroy the sons and daughters of Adam. That's the target. That's the agenda. And hardly anyone cares as Wyland keeps sending Bible gifts to non-Adamic Nigerians. The universalist interpretation of Scripture has made a fraud of Yahweh's teachings. We have been betrayed by our clergy. We have adopted the religions of the strangers who will destroy us, and we have been sold out to the devil. It is certainly clear that all universalists, including Wyland, Jones, and Brueggemann, are on the side of the devil. Now Clifton moves towards a conclusion under a subtitle. Daniel makes liars of all universalists. To show you this, we will go to Daniel chapter 2, verses 43 to 45, which reads, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, a form of the word Enosh, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay, ostensibly comparing Adam and Enosh. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. And Clifton underlines that line. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, 
and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. I must add that where Daniel says in chapter 2 that the kingdom shall not be left to other people, his intention is clarified in chapter 7. There, in a parallel vision, we read in part, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then a little further on, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now Clifton continues. I underlined the key verse to illustrate that there is only one people to whom the kingdom will be left. To understand what people Daniel was prophesying about, let's take it step by step. The head of gold was the Babylonian Empire of whom the Nazar was king. The shoulders of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire, which was conquered by Greece. And Greece, in turn, was typified by the hips of brass, which was conquered by Rome, symbolized by the iron. And then the clay was folded in by the universalist Romans. This is where most so-called prophecy experts stop. But we must go back to verse 43, where it says, iron mixed with miry clay. The clay was not a part of the original illustration. The miry clay represents Rome's slave trade, of which almost every household in Rome had several who were of diverse races. After Rome got into financial trouble, Rome made them citizens. This happened at the time of the Emperor Caracalla in the 3rd century. Rome made them citizens in order to collect more taxes, whereupon many mixed marriages occurred, similar to what we see going on in all Israel countries today. The same thing happened in the United States when the slaves were freed and made citizens, and now we are intermingling with Negroes. Same thing, same pattern. Then, in verse 45, we read, The stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, etc. Anyone with the slightest knowledge of history knows that it was the German tribes that systematically broke down and destroyed both the western and finally the eastern branches of the Roman Empire. And in Israel identity today, we know that the German tribes were Israelites. It's amazing to me that James Brueggemann calls his so-called ministry Stone Kingdom Ministries, and that Daniel said in verse 44, and the kingdom, the stone kingdom, shall not be left to other people. Yet he does an about face and endorses bringing all races into the kingdom. Now, either the prophet Daniel is a liar, or James Brueggemann is a liar, along with his sidekicks, Stephen Jones and Ted Wyland, plus about 90% of the so-called pastors in Israel identity. Clifton justly felt that 90% of the so-called identity pastors of the time were universalists in one way or another. And I must say that I have to agree. None of them are truly Christian identity because they all seek to 
obfuscate identity in one form or another, making some excuse or other for non-Adamic races. The plain truth is that Yahweh did not create them. They are all bastards, and they are all goats whose destiny is in the same fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Continuing with Clifton. Repeating verse 44 again, Daniel said, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. What is there about these words of the prophet Daniel that they don't understand, and they proclaim just the opposite, and keep sending Bibles to blacks in Nigeria? Ted Weiland doesn't have one solid scripture to base his theory on, yet I doubt if he will ever repent for contradicting Daniel because of his God syndrome. He's like the Pope, infallible. And this is also a good assessment. Over the past 10 years since I was released from prison, several times I confronted Ted Weiland in social media in a gentlemanly manner, at least as gentlemanly as I could muster. Each time he blocked me and was even arrogant enough to cite Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, and the saying about throwing pearls before swine in reference to me. Not only is Wyland a clown, he is also a coward. But he pretends to be infallible, while at the same time he finds ways to avoid discussion with those who think otherwise. So Clifton continues, all these so-called pastors, identity or not, teaching origins universalism. Origin was one of the so-called church fathers, but he had Gnostic leanings. He was in Alexandria among the Jews of Egypt, and he was a universalist, and he taught replacement theology, which is not found in scripture. All of these so-called pastors, identity or not, teaching origins universalism, saving even Satan, which they falsely dub the restitution of all things. Israel identity and holy writ has been made a farce. And I must state that our purpose is to eradicate that possibility. Returning to Clifton, for anyone wanting more information on the book of Daniel, Refer to my series in my Watchman's Teaching Letters, numbers 53 through 61, where I went into great detail on many things like the illustration above of Daniel chapter 2, verses 43 to 45. But where is this stone kingdom that is to last forever and never be destroyed? It's America, no thanks to Wyland. Canada, Britain, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, Finland, France, Northern Italy, Iceland, the Netherlands, Lithuania, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, perhaps portions of Greece and Spain, and any other Celto-Saxon country I may have missed. Now he concludes, repeating, read in the Apocrypha, Ecclesiasticus 12.5, the wisdom of Sirach. 12.5, as we will receive twice the evil for donating our bread of life, 
or Bibles to the non-Adamic Enosh. Why is it that we always have to learn Yahweh's all-important, never-changing word the hard way, and that there are always those who, through vanity, twist the truth? And that certainly describes Ted Wyland. This has been a longer presentation than usual. However, I hope to have both upheld and strengthened Clifton's positions against these universalists who have been infecting Christian identity for decades while also making amends for and correcting some old Christian identity misconceptions regarding certain words and their meanings. These men should all be mocked, who would corrupt the immutable covenants of Yahweh our God. He, I pray, spreads dung upon their faces, as he promised the Levites who would corrupt his covenant in Malachi. I don't remember which chapter, probably chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And no nigger, spick, Jew, Chinaman, or any other beast can ever, can ever attach themselves to his covenants. Thank you for listening, and good night.